Well, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to enter into a time of teaching a little bit normal, taking a break from our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, in which God's people said, amen, a little break, a little break. We've been in it. We've been going. Uh, we got some fun stuff ahead, so we'll pick that back up next week. This week, I wanted to pause um, and share a little bit about my uh, trip to visit our ministry partners in Athens, Greece. So... Um, we are partnered with a ministry called Middle East Partners, who's la- uh, led by a woman named Kathy Giske. Oh, newcomer lunch. All right, we need a, uh, before I get into it, we need a hand count so we can order the exact perfect amount of Chipotle plus three, because pe- three people always change their mind during, so we'll do plus three. So raise your hand if you want to come to the newcomer's lunch today. Okay, we got it. Good. I'll be there. Okay, we're good. And if you change your mind, we'll always order three extra, you know, that's what we do. So, um, Kathy Giske is this amazing woman. She's uh, spoken here at Sedaris before, um, if you've been around for a little while. Um, she has invited us into the work that she's doing. She's partnered with six or seven different ministries that are working in Athens, primarily um, with uh, people who are refugees coming out of the Middle East. And so we got to, I got to visit six different ministries while I was there. Um, I'd heard about them in name, but I got to meet them in spirit. And it was a fantastic uh, a trip, unbelievable stories. And I thought, you know, you guys are partnered with these ministries because like Ryan said, uh, when you give to Sedaris Church, we give a tenth of that away. And, and one of our main focuses is this, these ministries um, in Athens, who are serving refugees as God is bringing them out of um, what, for pretty much all of them, are Muslim contexts. And for the first time in their lives, they're encountering, they now have the freedom to consider Jesus Christ for who he is. If you don't uh, understand Islam, um, Islam does teach that Jesus was a prophet, so they hold him in some esteem, but he is not the Son of God. He did not die on the cross for the sins of of humanity, and of course, if he didn't die, he didn't rise from the dead. So um, they have some con- uh, concept of who Jesus is, um, some reverence for Jesus, but uh, to, to, to the person, each person we heard their story, they had no idea about what Christianity truly t- thought. Uh, they thought, because of the context they were in, where the state, the government, and uh, Islam are so intertwined, they believed that Christianity was what they saw on TV and the movies from Hollywood about America. They often thought Christianity was America. Now, for those of us who know, we're like, that's clearly not the case. But they didn't know that. Um, It's not their fault. But God, I believe in his grace, has brought them out of that shadow, that lie about who Jesus is in Christianity, and has given them an opportunity to consider Jesus by bringing them out. So we'll talk a little bit about what's going on there. But um, they would see it as an incredible grace of God. How could being a refugee be the incredible grace of God? Well, because they had a chance to consider Jesus. So one of the things we partner with here at Sedaris is something that we helped to start. It's called the Consider Project. And you can look this up. We have a website. It's called considerproject.com where it's a sort of a growing organization that's not the same as the church, but has clearly, if you know the story of Sedaris, has the same mission to help people consider 
But every Consider Project event, we give to an organization that's helping um, to create freedoms around the world so that people have the opportunity to consider Jesus. That's what I saw these ministries doing in Athens. By God's grace, through the hard work and dedication of these ministry leaders, people who never had the opportunity to consider Jesus are now brought into a place where they can, for the first time, consider the real Jesus. And it's changing their lives. And the beautiful thing that's happening, because Greece is not uh, a robust economy, unemployment's very high, many of these refugees will come out of the Middle East, stay for a season in Athens, and then they'll go off into other uh, more affluent or um, more opportunities in other European countries. So actually what we see God doing is bringing an exodus out of the Middle East, evangelizing, discipling these brand new, once Muslim, now Christian disciples, and then sending them all over Europe. If you know anything about Europe, it's a very spiritually dead place. And we believe that now God is using these people to start new trees of faith all over Europe. It's incredible work that God's doing. So I want to share a little bit about that. Before I get into some of my big takeaways, I just want to show you some uh, pictures of our ministry partners so that you can be praying for them. So here's a picture. Well, this is me. You're a ministry partner with me. And this is Pastor Monacher. Pastor Monacher uh, himself was an Iranian refugee, came to Greece, found the Lord, and now he pastors a church. I got to preach at Pastor Monacher's church uh, the first Sunday that I was there to a group about 30 or 40 um, Iranians. Uh, Pastor Monacher translated, of course, for me. Um, such a blessing to get to know Pastor Monacher. Uh, he took us out to dinner. He can really eat. <laughs> so he's a brother of mine. So <laughs> anyhow, it's Pastor Monacher. Here is Vula on the left and um, Ilias on the right. On the right, and uh, they lead and started a ministry called Bridges Humanitarian um, Relief. And Bridges is a ministry that um, has social services for refugees. So they have caseworkers, social workers that help refugees um, with the legal matters of, of seeking asylum uh, once they get into uh, uh, Europe. And this is a huge step, obviously, if you can get uh, asylum, then you're able to move to these other countries within Europe freely, because Athens is a part of the EU. And so um, people come from all over, incredible stories of what they're doing, uh, their heart. Um, I wish I could share their testimonies as well, but I'm only picking a few today. But they're incredible leaders for God's kingdom, and hundreds if not thousands of disciples have flowed through bridges and are now, like I said, scattered all over Europe um, with this newfound life and the Spirit of God living in them. So, because of Vula and Ilias. So, incredible. Okay, so here's Kathy. Kathy's here on the left. So, Kathy lives here in Seattle. You've, you may see her around. Um, Sidera, she comes and visits every once in a while. Um, and she's the missionary we support through Middle East Partners. And then on the right is Kali, with a K. And Kali is Greek. And she is like, if, if you know in the book of Acts, there's a woman named Lydia who's clearly a boss. <laughs> Lydia says she's a, she, she clearly owns her own business, making purple um, fabrics and whatnot, and she's clearly like a kingpin. Kali is the same. Not only is she wearing purple, but she is so connected. She's actually 
She's the puppet master that pulls all the strings. So Kathy met her uh, many, many years ago and, and is the one that's connected Kathy to all these other ministry partners. And then Kathy's connecting us and other churches back here in the States to these ministry partners. Callie is an amazing, amazing leader in God's kingdom. And uh, one day some of you may get to meet her. So here, here is Pastor Masood. And Pastor Masood invited us into his house uh, he's got this, they call it the Afghan house. They rent it out as an Airbnb, but it's cultural immersion. So he's from Afghanistan, and uh, he has such a love for his home country. His hope is to be able to go back and bring the gospel back uh, to Afghanistan one day. But uh, he leads a church called Agape there in Greece, and he's all, already planted two or three other churches around Greece um, that are reaching out to uh, the people of, of Afghanistan as they come as refugees uh, into Europe. So uh, an incredible man. Here's a picture. So you see Kali there, and she's connecting us with another new ministry partner. They have a prison ministry reaching to the prisons in Greece. All over Greece, for some strange reason, wardens of these prisons are calling uh, these gentlemen, Rudy and George. Uh, Rudy's in the middle. George is on the right. Uh, George himself was in prison for a time, and now he goes back and shares the gospel in prisons. 60% of prisoners in Greece are foreign-born, uh, and so they're able to go in. Uh, they're actually being invited by wardens all over Greece to come and bring the gospel and share it because they see the benefit for the people in their prisons. It's unbelievable. God has opened a door there, and they are, um, they're like growing. They're like, we need resources and we need more people because we're being invited in by these prison systems to come share the gospel. Again, if, the, if, it, if I had more time, I could share. That's incredible <laughs> in Europe for prisons to be allowing people to come in whose sole intention is to share about the good news of Jesus. In Europe, that's such a strange thing, but God is opening doors in this place because I believe, and, and Callie has helped me see this, that God's doing a new thing. Almost, she calls it a new exodus where God is bringing his people out of darkness into the light. So that's our ministry partners. Here's a picture of the first story I'll tell you about uh, me having a conversation. This is a young man from Pastor Monitor's church, um, so I'll share with him in a sec. So you can uh, go ahead and take those pictures down. So I'm going to share three stories and, and tell you the spiritual insight that I think lies behind them. Um, I, don't just want, I, I want to share these stories for two reasons. One, they deserve to be shared because they speak of our God, His power his tenderness, his mercy, his grace. And so they deserve to be echoed all over the world. The second thing is I want you to see that although these stories will be, um, they're going to seem to us extraordinary. Um, and you might be tempted to get lost in, uh, in the craziness of these stories. But I want you to be able to see this is, this is your story. This is each and every one of our stories as God is doing the same thing for us. It looks different, sounds different. It's going to feel very foreign to us, but it's our story. So when I share these stories, I'm not going to use their real names. One, for their protection. Two, because I don't want you to think, oh, that's somewhere else. I don't want you to put this in some category of some other type of human being. These people are you. And in some way God's doing the same thing for you that he's done for them he's drawing you out of somewhere to draw him near to him so um, 
as, as we were singing um, the story of the second song, the song called Until These Tears Are Gone, I just want to read you the lyrics again. Because I think this is a song about the stories that so many of these refugees coming out of the Middle East into Europe have experienced. The lyric says this, Flood this heart with assurance of your mercy. Fill this mind with the knowledge of your love. Hold me fast through the deep and steady current. How long, how long till these tears are gone? Every hour, awake me to your presence. Shine your light brighter than the dawn. Send your joy. Illuminate the darkness. How long, how long till these tears are gone? I'll fix my eyes on eternity above where every lie isn't covered by your love. I'll fix my eyes on eternity above where every lie is uncovered by your love. Every lie, every shadow is uncovered by your love. First story I want to share is of a young man. I'm going to call him Henry. Henry was living in Iran and his story is very similar to how a lot of people come to Athens. Uh, he grew up as a Muslim. About 12 years ago, he became disenchanted with the Muslim faith. And he stopped believing, he told me. But he didn't tell anyone. For nine years, he was able to hide the fact from his friends and his family. He would find excuses not to attend religious festivals and he was able to hide it. One day, he was speaking with somebody who he thought was a friend, somebody who he thought he could trust, and he was just sharing that he no longer believed in God. It turns out that that person actually worked for the government, and that person told him, if I ever see you again, I'm going to have you arrested because of your lack of, of faith or your lack of adherence to the practices of Islam. Now, we might think, oh... Those are just empty, hollow words. Those aren't empty, hollow words. I heard story after story, and I'll share a story in a second, where those weren't empty words, where someone was thrown in prison. So Henry decided and realized he had to leave his country, his home, everything that he knew. And with his wife and his mother, he fled the country. Oftentimes, this fleeing will include some sort of combination of paying smugglers to drive you across the border and usually always days and days of walking at night through mountainous regions to avoid the checkpoints. And they would all, they're all connected to Turkey and so they'd somehow get to the, the border of Turkey and then they have to evade uh, border patrol and walk across Turkey or, or find a bus or some, some way to get to the edge of the sea the western edge of Turkey, where then it's just the Aegean Sea between them and Greece. So this is what Henry and his family did. And um, the smugglers brought him to the shores. It was nighttime. Miraculously, he got the first boat, which is not always the case. And he was able to get uh, access to a 30-foot rubber, rubber boat. So from one edge of the stage probably to the other, uh, a rubber boat 
And the smugglers collect the money before you get on the boat. They don't drive the boat. They've got their money, and they send people out onto the sea. They pick one person to be captain. Henry was chosen to be captain. He had some experience with the boat, and they told him, just head that way. Boat this size, 60 people on this boat. It's about all of us crammed on this stage on a boat. Henry said he was terrified. He said the swells were 10 feet high. There were 11 children on the boat. And he thought, I'm going to be responsible for all these people's death. He said it was pitch black except he saw one light in the distance. He didn't know what it was. He now says that was the light of Christ. And he just followed that light. Miraculously, somehow, they made it to the shores of a Greek island called Lesvos, where many, many refugees spend time. And in that camp, a camp that was originally built for 600 people, there were 7,000 refugees living there. Henry said it was like hell. And for six months, he lived there until he was transferred to the mainland. It was on the mainland that he remembered a friend who once told him about Christianity and he was walking through the neighborhood in which he was now living and he saw and heard Pastor Monacher's church singing in his language and he decided, maybe I should try that out. Nine months ago, Henry became a Christian deciding to follow Jesus. And I met him at a Bible study that we were a part of. This is such a common story. This journey across the sea, getting on a boat where you have no idea where you're going or how you'll survive. But God's presence, his light shines through the deep and steady current, bringing many, many people to safety and then many, many people to faith in Christ. Now just to give you an idea of what this would mean for somebody like Henry, I asked him, because baptism is a really important thing for these people as a way of symbolizing, as it should be for us, that we are now giving our life to Christ, that we are now followers of Jesus. So baptism is a huge thing. Baptism is a huge thing. And I asked him, have you been baptized? And he said, I baptized myself in my shower. He said, because I'm fearful that if, they, if uh, the officials back home found out I became a Christian, that my brother would be decapitated. Again, we can't fathom. Why would somebody give their life to Christ? Only if it were true. And God had rescued them physically and spiritually. That's Henry's story. Through the deep and steady current, the presence of Christ, the light of Christ, awakened his soul. The second story I'm going to share is about a young man named Nathan. And one of the things uh, that was just so apparent, and the reason why I want to share some of these testimonies, they'll never get a chance to come here and share themselves. Uh, It's my way of honoring them. It's my way of honoring God. Um, And I believe that testimonies are God's way of stretching our spiritual imagination. I've been talking a lot with Ty about this. Her story, her testimony, stretches our spiritual imagination. 
having access to the stories of people around the world and the ways, the different ways that God reaches them, touches their life, changes their life, stretches our imagination. And we, as many American Christians here, we need help having our spiritual imagination stretched. The things God's capable of doing. So I'm going to share share with you another story, Nathan's story. It's not his real name. But he's us. And God moved in just a different way. Nathan was from Saudi Arabia. He actually grew up in a non-Muslim minority group. And of course a predominantly Muslim country. His family was of some means. And so he lived a fairly good life, but he wrecked his life. He spent all this money. He wasted it away, like as many of our stories. He got to the point where he'd gotten himself into some trouble. He'd run out of money, and he realized he needed a fresh start, and so he was forced to to flee, and he decided to flee to Europe. He had enough money at that point to pay smugglers to make his journey to Greece a bit easier. But when he ended up in Athens, um, these smugglers realized he might have some money. So when he arrived, he was let out of the car, and then eight men jumped him, bagged his head, drove him off, and for 15 days kept him locked, tied up to a chair in a garage, trying to extort ransom from him or his family, thinking, of course, that he had money that he no longer had. For 15 days, they, they beat him, humiliated him, forced him to make videos that were, of course, lies, all trying to extract this money from him. He kept insisting he no longer had money. He was unable to pay his ransom. His family would be unable to pay his ransom. They tried to humiliate him by forcing him to lap water off of the garage floor in order to hydrate himself like he was a dog. They told him that if he didn't find the money that they would harvest his organs and sell them on the open market. And so he's sitting there on the 15th day, tied up to a chair, his hands and his feet bound, and he remembered a friend he had back in Saudi Arabia who happened to be a Christian. And this friend had asked him one day, Nathan, would you like to hear about Jesus? And at that point, Nathan said, no, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't need him. And so his friend told him, okay, I respect that. He said, just remember, this friend said to him, if you're ever in trouble, pray to God in the name of Jesus. And so tucked away somewhere deep in his subconscious was this conversation he'd had with his friends years earlier. And tied to this chair, bound, pretty sure his life would be lost. Nathan decided to pray to this Jesus. And he prayed, God, help me. I pray in the name of Jesus. If you're real, help me. All of a sudden, the ties around his wrists and his ankles loosened. And he was able to slip his hands out. 
and those men who were guarding him, he could see them. They were outside a door of the garage with a small window, and he could see them, and they were distracted. Nobody was looking at him. Nobody was watching, and his hands were released. And he looked, and he saw on the other side of the garage a door that led to a wall. And the wall was about two meters high, which is a pretty high wall, nearly six feet. I'm, I'm bad at the metric system. Nader's, sorry, Nathan's not a particularly athletic-looking fellow. <laughs> Looks a bit like me. And uh, he said, there's no way I'll be able to jump that wall. But he says, something's happened. I've got to try. He gets up. He runs towards this wall. And he says he jumped. He said he felt something lift him up over the wall. And this is probably about a 230-pound man was able to clear a two-meter wall. He says, God lifted him up over that wall. And he was able to escape. He ran to a police station, and he thought the police, because he was an illegal refugee, he had no papers. They thought that they would throw him in jail. They didn't. They invited him into the office and offered him protection. And they connected him to this Bridges humanitarian organization. It was at Bridges that he asked more about this person of Jesus, who he believed had rescued him. Now, Nathan works as a translator and a bus driver, helping other refugees who come in and out of Athens. He still, and this is the part of the story that's hard to fathom, he's still terrified to walk alone in the streets of Athens because his kidnappers, he's seen them before. They're still there. He's terrified, so you can pray for Nathan. What do you believe that God could do to save his children. Is your spiritual imagination too small? Do you believe that God can only save someone in one particular way in the 21st century? You need to pray bigger prayers. You need to pray for your friends, for your family, who are bound up. Maybe not by kidnappers, but something that's stolen real life from them. Something that keeps them from freedom, from experiencing life in Christ. Something's binding them up, and you need to pray big prayers that God would release those chains. You see, not many of us have friends that are like Nathan, but we all have friends that are just like Nathan. They cannot on their own, become free to consider the person of Christ. We need to pray big prayers for our friends, big prayers for our family, big prayers of the God who can move in these kinds of ways, could move in their life. Don't give up on those friends. Pray for the power of God to loosen their chains so that they can find life, that they can jump over whatever hurdle or wall is in their way, that they might find their way into a community like Bridges, a community like ours, where they can actually consider the person of Jesus. I think with Easter coming up in a few weeks, we need to stretch our spiritual imagination. I think for two years, people have been bound up. I think for two years, whatever it was that kept them from Jesus has probably grown stronger. Those binds have grown tighter. 
But I pray that on Easter, many bonds would be broken. That people would realize they have a freedom now, maybe even to come and consider Jesus. But you, you can be a part of that. You need to make yourself aggressively available to them so that they know where to go next. God will do his part. We need to do our part. To be ready for them. We should be expecting God to loosen someone's chains that we thought would never be loosened. That maybe this year, they'll be ready to consider Jesus. Pray big prayers, friends. Whoever's coming to your mind right now, whoever's your Nathan, whoever you feel like is locked up in a garage of their their own sin, a garage of their own bad habits, their own addiction, their own greed, whatever it is, whoever's coming to mind, write their name down and start praying for big prayers in their life. They might not be able to, like Nathan, pray them themselves. You can pray for them. You can intercede on their behalf. I pray this room is full on Easter of people who for some reason realize something loosened in my life. The call, the invitation feels different this year. Maybe I'll come learn more about this Jesus. That's Nathan's story. <laughs> Man, I wish you could know. He is the life of the party. You wouldn't believe it. With that story, with the, the fear he still lives in, he is so alive in Christ that you wouldn't believe he's the same guy that just less than a year ago was locked in a garage. God is good, friends. New life in the Spirit is real. Praise God that he's doing this both abroad and here. Next story. This is a story about how God's grace is often painful. God's grace is often painful. John 1.5 says this. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Darkness is real. Darkness is powerful. And when God extracts you from the darkness, he doesn't say it's going to be painless. Because it's real. Its teeth sink into you. And so when God rips you out of that context of darkness... You should expect it to be painful. Has anybody seen the newest Batman movie? Brave. Good. It's dark. It's very dark. It's the darkest of all the Batman depictions. And um, in fact, they needed new technology, new film technology, in order to to capture the vision of the director who wanted to be so dark that they needed different cameras in order to actually be able to follow the Batman. And this picture of darkness, in some ways I think is a clear picture of the darkness of this world. C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings, um, they were buddies and they were both Christians. And they used to get together at this pub uh, and talk about what they were working on And they both decided to write long, sweeping novels about 
fantasy. And when asked why they both came to this conclusion, uh, they said, particularly in the West, we have been so um, tricked into thinking uh, there's not really a distinction between good and evil. It's all just kind of gray. And they said, what we wanted to do in writing our novels was to make it so obvious to people, and their souls know this, that there is good and there is evil in the world, that there is light and there is darkness in the world. And so through story, we were able to show that clarity better than just talking about it in the abstract. So if you know those stories, you understand how well they've accomplished this goal of seeing light and darkness. Sometimes in the West, we forget that darkness is real, that evil is real, and that we need God to bring his light. The truth of the gospel tells us that no matter how dark it is, no matter how absent the context we're living in has light, that nothing can keep light from coming in, even if God, if, if, or sorry, if God desires. But it might be painful. In fact, I think the promise is it will be painful. Like childbirth is painful. New life comes through pain, but it's a pain that we should be willing to receive because it's the new pain that comes with new life at the end. Matthew 16, 24 to 25 says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. This is the promise of Jesus. And I think this is the story that becomes so clear over and over again that I heard this last week about God inviting these people, at the time not even knowing that they had to lose their life in order to find new life in Christ. That's the next story I'd like to share. I'd like to share the story of my, my friend. I'm going to call him Scott. Um, Scott now lives in Athens. He's a translator now for Bridges, humanitarian organization. And <laughs> he reminds me a bit of myself. Um, he's got great hair. It's got really, it's got, we, we joked about it. has got great hair. I'll show you a picture of him sometime. He's got gray hair. And what's funny is all the other employees at Bridges, all the other men are bald. <laughs> so I, I said to so this guy, I said, this must be difficult for you. You must get a lot of jealousy. He said, oh, absolutely. I said, yeah, me and Ryan have this same issue. <laughs> so, um, so this is a friend of mine. This is, this is an eternal friend. Um, one day you may get to meet Scott. Uh, he grew up in Iran, uh, but he was Kurdish, and, and the Kurds are a minority group in, in many Middle Eastern countries. There's a long history about why that is. Um, but Scott grew up very athletic. In fact, he had signed a, a contract to play professional soccer in the Middle East. 
and one day he was hanging around uh, with his friends, and they were just shooting the breeze, having a good time. Again, he's Kurdish by birth, and he made a few comments about how he loves the Kurdish people, and um, he says, I'm Kurdish. I love the Kurds. Uh, One person at that party, again, who he thought was a friend, was not a friend, and reported him to the authorities. The authorities um, arrested Scott, saying that he was supporting a Kurdish rebellion in their country. Of course, he was not. Threw him in prison. Without a lawyer, without a trial, without telling his parents what had happened to them, they didn't find out what had happened to him for eight months. Uh, he was brought before a judge. And the judge gave him two pens. He said, this blue pen, you sign here with this blue pen, 10 years in prison. This is in 2015, the same year we planted this church. Give you some context. Blue pen, 10 years in prison. Red pen, death by hanging. Those are your two options. Sign now. No lawyer, no family, no trial. And so Scott decided, I want to live. And so he signed his name with the blue pen. Ten years in prison. While in prison, they put him, not with the political prisoners, where he should have been, because that's what his charges were, but with thieves, murderers, a rough crowd. What is, Scott says, God's grace. One day, uh, someone walked by his cell who was living on the second floor, the floor that was much more livable, and it happened to be one of his soccer coaches from his youth, and saw him and said, Scott, what are you doing here? He explained, and this coach was able to get him transferred to the second floor But while in prison, his hair, this great hair, turned completely white because of the stress. He was only 25 years old at the time. He became, as you might imagine, um, incredibly despairing. On more than one occasion, he tried to take his own life unsuccessfully. Again, he sees that as God's grace. And after the second or third attempt, this coach was able to help him speak with somebody of some power in the prison. And uh, Scott, for the first time, was given a 10-day leave in order to see his family and get psychiatric treatment. In order to get this leave, his family had to put their family home and the family restaurant that they owned as collateral. And Scott had a a monitor put on his ankle. Couldn't leave more than 50 kilometers from the prison. And when he got home for the first time in eight months, he saw his family. And his dad looked at him and said, Scott, you have to go. Scott didn't want to go. He didn't want his family to lose everything. Dad said, you have to go. So with the backpack... 
and nothing else, Scott left his life behind. His dad was able to arrange a car for him to get to the border of Iran and Turkey. From there, he walked on foot two days through the mountains to get past border patrol. He eventually found himself again at the shore of the Aegean Sea. Just like Henry's story that I shared earlier, he, um, he took one of these 30-foot rafts. This had no motor on it. They literally pushed them out and let the current take them. And the same thing happened. He thought he would die, but found himself the next morning being picked up by a Greek um, coast guard and taken to a refugee camp on the island of Lesbos. He then went up into a northern camp. He wanted to get to um, uh, Western Europe, where his brother, actually his older brother, had fled years earlier and was living in Luxembourg. But Scott wasn't able to cross the border. 25 times he was caught by the Macedonian border patrols. He tried to flee for some reason. He was an athletic guy, professional soccer player. Many, many people made it across. He kept getting caught, and he couldn't understand why. He became good friends with the Border Patrol. We'll see you tomorrow, <laughs> he said. They always said, they'll see you tomorrow. He couldn't understand. Why couldn't he make it across? Well, after several months, maybe six or seven months of trying this, uh, a Christian missionary walked through his camp and handed him, said, I have a gift for you. Now, what you have to understand is for, in this particular camp, Scott was happy to get an apple a day. So he thought the gift was going to be some food or candy or something like that. And so he followed her back uh, to her, wherever she had set up her shop and, and, and gave him the gift. The gift was a Bible. <laughs> and he said, a Bible? What am I going to do with this? And he took it home and he threw it in the garbage. Months later, he saw the same woman again, and she asked, have you read the Bible? And she said, and he said, no, of course not. I need food, not a Bible. He said, just read John 3.16. Just read that one verse. So he went, found, maybe there was lots of Bibles and trash cans everywhere. <laughs> it's hard to know. He found a Bible, and, and for the next months, he started to read. He started with John 3.16. He said, I, that might be true. And then he read all of the Gospel of John. He said, this might be true. And then he read all the New Testament. He said, I think this is true. And he heard from another Dutch missionary that there was a bus of people going to a church. No, I forgot this part of the story. Uh, one night he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw a man standing in a white robe saying, you need to go to church. He woke up the next day, and standing outside of his tent, was a Dutch missionary saying, hey, we're taking a bus full of people down to church. Does anyone want to come? It's undeniable. <laughs> he said, I think I'm supposed to get on that bus. So he went to this church, and for months, three months, he went to this church over and over and over again every Sunday, and he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He's then transferred to another refugee camp, that was, an, it was two and a half hours from the church. And still, every Sunday, he 
got on a bus and took a two and a half hour drive so they could go to church to be with this church family, his brothers and sisters of Christ, to hear the word of God preached, to sing praises to Jesus. For six months, two and a half hours every Sunday. Eventually, he was transferred down to Athens, where one day he was walking down the street, and the bridges ministry is very, you wouldn't see it from the road, but he heard people, as he was walking down this busy street in Athens, he heard people singing songs in his native language. And so he went, and he investigated, and he found Bridges Humanitarian Initiative. And he went in, and he met Ilias, and Ilias gave him a big hug, and he said, would you like to join a Bible study about Jesus? He said, heck yeah. And for the last four years, Scott's been working as a translator. Before he came there, he has a particular dialect, being Kurdish. Uh, No one with his particular dialect, he speaks several languages, was coming to Bridges. Zero. They brought him on staff in faith. (laughs) And the next week, people started to come. That spoke his particular language that needed a particular translator to hear the gospel of Jesus. And now over half of the people they minister to are Scots, of Scots' background. There's so much to say, so much more to say. But he left his family behind, his country behind, with just a backpack and his grief. And now he's found a new life. He's since been married to a Christian woman. He's full of life. His gray hair turned back to beautiful black hair. And uh, God's using him. Now, what's so interesting about his story, I just want to share this part as well. Um, He uh, got a phone call from the authorities. He had already been granted asylum, but he got uh, a phone call from the authorities saying, your paperwork has come through. You can now go be with your brother in Luxembourg, which would be for refugees living in Greece, like a huge upgrade. Job opportunities, um, quality of life, all these things. And what Scott did is he went and he talked to Vula and Ilias, and he told them about this opportunity. And he said, it's just not sitting right in my heart. Even though my Luxembourg application has been approved and I'm free to leave Greece, he says, I, I don't feel, it doesn't feel right. And so he said that he decided to stay. Stay in Athens and work for God. I just thought that's so powerful that what he thought was life was not life. That God was making plans for him that he knew not of. And that when the opportunity to have what others would say is the good life, he chose to stay and do God's work. This is the kind of transformation that God can do. But it's important just to make very clear it's painful. The grace of God is often painful. It's not easy. It's loss. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us. That through death comes resurrection. And I heard that story over and over again. 
the most profound thing on my trip, I've shared this with some of you, was, was in particular these young men that I met who had a kind of ferocity of conviction about who God was and what Jesus had done for them, but they had this kindness in their eyes, this softness, this tenderness. And that, that paradox, that combination, I know is rare in the Middle East, I know it's rare in the United States. This, this conviction about who God is and this kindness in the eyes, and that's how you know somebody's been changed by the Holy Spirit. And I saw it over and over again. I saw it in Scott's eyes. I saw it in Nathan's eyes. I saw it in Henry's eyes. I saw it in Ilias's eyes. And, I, saw, and I, I thought to myself, what could possibly account for this? And the answer is having a relationship with a God who gave up everything so that we could find new life. They know him. And he makes them convicted, powerful forces for his kingdom but forces that know that they've been saved by grace through pain and suffering and loss being asked to leave everything behind so that they might find life in Christ so that's Scott's story there's a chance you may get to meet him one day like I said we're good friends now connected over so many things um, what has God brought you through? This is your story too. What has he asked you to give up to follow him? What life did you have to leave behind? If you haven't, you're still holding on to something, some relationship, some habit, some... Let it go. The new life in Christ is so worth it. Like a treasure, Jesus says. You sell everything you have to buy the field where the treasure is. And I saw in these men and women the willingness, even if it was God that initiated, the thankfulness that he did to leave everything behind so that they might find new life in Christ. Final insight I had was this. These are political refugees, um, physical refugees. But Jesus says this in John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So while many of us, some of us have been refugees, um, I think all of us are spiritual refugees or have been at one point in our life. Most of the people who donned the doors of Sedaris, their parents didn't grow up at Sedaris. <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. Um, <laughs> very good chance their parents didn't grow up at Sedaris. We've only been here seven years, so. Many of you are not from Seattle. Many of you have been taken or drawn out of a past life, whether it's in a different part of this country or another country, and you have been brought here. You're spiritual refugees. 
And I pray that you are experiencing here what I saw those experiencing in Athens. That you can see that it's God's hand maybe moving you to Seattle. Maybe you thought, I'll never find God in Seattle. Seattle? I was, I was running away from God. At least you thought you were. God was drawing you in. You needed some distance from your past so that you could see the presence of God here. So while we aren't not about to be political refugees or religious refugees, we're all spiritual refugees, and I hope you see God's hand at work in your life. And I pray, this is one of my big prayers, is that we get better at telling our stories about how once we were spiritual refugees, and now we see God's hand was drawing us out. God's hand was having us leave behind something that was holding us tight. It was God's hand gently and tenderly guiding us to this place where we could consider Jesus afresh, anew, or for the first time. And that we look back and we say, thank you, God. And that we'd have a conviction in our heart about who he is and what he does and our imagination would be expanded. And we'd have tenderness in our eyes because we know that he's the one who drew us here. We need to tell our stories. Think of Nathan's story. He has a very clear story of 15 days here, and if God hadn't rescued me, I know how this would have gone. Guess what? Even if you were born in the affluence of American society, you were born knowing who Jesus was or growing up in a Bible teaching church, you still have that story where you can say, at some point I was bound to something, and I know if God didn't free me from that, I know how my story would have gone. I would experience death and life. It would have consumed me and destroyed me if God hadn't freed me. We all have that story, and we've got to get better at telling it. Because you telling your story stretches the spiritual imagination of those around you. Your story is the stories I heard. You need to do the work to see God's hand drawing you out of the darkness into light. Freeing the chains that held you captive providing a way for you to leap obstacles that you didn't think you can leap. Yes, asking you to leave things behind, maybe even family and friends and relationships, because he's drawing you into his glorious light. We all have a story. Our friends need to hear our stories. They need to be convinced that it's worth investing their time and energy and Sundays and weeknights in the exploration of this person of Jesus. So you've got to get good at telling your stories. And you've got to get good at praising God, thanking Him for what He's done. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. That's your story. Make sure the world knows it. Let's pray.